I want to start off by sharing with you that God has a problem. God has a really big problem. And one of the problems that God has is that He has this crazy tendency to partner with people to do His work. His heart is so big that He desires to partner with broken, sinful, flaky people like you and I. And that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Because we're people. And people make things complicated. People are hard to always depend on. And that's a big problem that God has. And as I was reading through um, this passage, I was struck afresh by the absurdity, the insanity of Jesus to actually partner with these dum-dums, these 12 apostles. And if you know the story of the 12 apostles, they're not very impressive. They're not the people that won uh, most likely to uh, succeed awards in senior year. You guys know about those superlatives? I won one in my school and it was called Whitest Award in my class, in, in my uh, chorus class. And full of Asians, and I won widest award. That's a true story. I'm not making that up to try to get a, a cheap laugh out of you. I literally won that. But these were not 12 people that you would say, you know what, if I want to start a revolution, I need the 12 best and brightest. Let me pick Peter. Because he's always nuanced with his speech, right? Let me pick, pick Thomas, because he has such unwavering faith. No, he picked 12 nobodies who remind me of me. And over the last year... I have never, over my life, I've never doubted my calling it to be a pastor since 15 years old. I'm 32. And yet this last year in 2020, I've struggled so much as a leader to be a good leader. I have thought about quitting so many times. That's hard for me to admit because I don't, I'm not a, I'm not prone to quitting. I'm, I'm a double downer kind of person. But I've considered quitting this last year. I've struggled. I thought, God, if I was only wiser, if I was only more humble, if I was only more like Christ, if I, if I only had a few more years under my belt as a leader, I would lead our church better during this pandemic and during the riots and during the elections and during all the crazy stuff going on in our cities and our world. But there lies the problem. That God has no one else to work with but people like me. Broken people like me and like you. That's all He has at His disposal. People who are willing, but deeply broken. And that is a very beautiful thing. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. Before we jump into our passage, let me paint the backdrop of where we've been for the last few months, and the last few weeks specifically, very quickly. Jesus has systematically been showing that he has supremacy and authority over areas that nobody could ever dare imagine some man could have authority over. He is taming the untamable, like demons, like storms, like death, like disease. He is showing systematically that every little thing in the world that man trembles over, that man only dreams to have power over, that Jesus has power over. Man has no power over weather, but Jesus does. Man has no power over demons, but Jesus does. Man has no power over disease, but Jesus does. Man has no power over life and death, but Jesus does. And we also saw last week that every single thing he does, he has beautiful timing behind it, even when it's hard for us to see. 
So Jesus Christ was the same year one of the woman who was suffering with the 12 years of bleeding. He was the same year five. He was the same year 12 when he healed her. Jesus has beautiful designs and all the timing. He's never late. He's always on time. And now, the insanity of our passage today in Luke chapter 9, and you will only see this insanity if you're actually reading your Bible carefully. Because if you just read Luke chapter 9 by itself, you could think, oh yeah, okay, Jesus is going to send out his apostles. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure, great. I've heard that before. But if you've been reading along with us and studying what Luke is doing, you're seeing Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. No one has authority but Jesus. And then in Luke chapter 9 comes, who else has authority? His disciples. His apostles. What? He's going to share with his apostles the same kind of authority and power that he has been exercising for chapters. That's insanity. He's not merely sharing money. He's not merely sharing some things that all any of us can share, like a chair. He's sharing literal power that can do things that no one else can do. Jesus is doing. And so what we're going to see is that Jesus shares his power and authority with his, with his apostles. And now for us today, Jesus wants us to join him in his work with his power. And I hope as we go into this text more, you'll feel the great weight and the grandeur and the gravity and the joy and the insanity of that. Because I think sometimes we can just assume, of course he would share his work and power with us. Now, one final preliminary before we jump into our text. This is a very important Bible reading tip that many people misunderstand. And that's the difference between, can you say this with me? Description versus prescription. Okay, description, one more time. Prescription. Knowing most of you, probably more than half of you know this, but often we forget this. What I mean by that is that whenever you read a story in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, is God describing this story for me to imitate exactly? Or perhaps it's telling me something that He did and that people did that I need to pull principles from. On the other hand, prescriptive is this is literally a command for all people at all times in this way are you tracking with me the difference this is very very important because when you read the Bible and you read stories you will get into a bunch of mess if you think every single thing you read you have to imitate in the same manner exactly the same way and so as we look into our text today we have to ask ourselves: is this prescriptive or descriptive and the tricky thing is, is that it is descriptive, and yet there are principles here that we want to follow, and there's a heart here that we want to have. So, throughout this passage, we're going to focus on primarily what happened, but then also try to pull examples and principles for us here. Would you look at your Bibles at Luke chapter 9, verse 1? Okay? If you didn't grab your Bible yet, please do. Like I said before, if you're not looking at your Bible when I'm preaching, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Because you've got to be looking at the book. You've got to test me. You've got to check my work. Because I could be fallible. In fact, I am fallible. Why did I say I could be fallible? I am fallible. 
I could be not perfect, maybe, right? No, I am imperfect, and I make mistakes. And so check the text, because that's the authority, and that's the only authority I have, is the text. Okay, look at verse 1. And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases. One side comment is that the twelve here is specifically the twelve apostles, and apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles, right? Apostles specifically comes from this word of being sent. These are specifically 12 guys that Jesus invested in for three years and he sent them out for specific purposes. Now we all have a sending in our life that we're going to talk about later, but these were a unique group of people. Okay, so he's investing in these 12. And in this situation, he gives them temporary power and authority. I'm going to explain that later. He gives them temporary power and authority. Now, let's talk about power and authority. Does those sound familiar? Power and authority? Since we've been going through Luke, power and authority? It should, right? I just said that in the context, right? Jesus has been showing power and authority. And all of a sudden it says that Jesus gives them power and authority. Notice that these are tied together. For you need power and authority. If you have power but not authority, then you have the strength, but you don't have the, the authority to exercise it. You may have authority, but you may not ha have the power to back up anything that you do. You need both power and authority, and Jesus grants them both. Quick example is that Satan has lots of power. Way more power than a lot of us can imagine. And yet, he has limited authority. For those of you guys who know your Bibles, remember in the book of Job. Job is given specific authority to touch and mess with Job's life for a specific purpose, but no further. And at, at all the times, he had the power to exercise it, but he did not have the authority or the sovereign kind of blessing to do something. Now, I know when you bring up Job, that brings up a lot of questions, and if that stirs your heart and that frustrates you, I've heard people walking away from Jesus because of the very story of Job, because you can't imagine that a God would allow suffering like that. Please talk with us. Don't let another day go by with that blaring brokenness in your heart regarding that. This this tension that you may feel. Sorry, I just felt like I had to say that. If that's you, come talk with us. Now, so, Jesus gives them power and authority. Where does this power come from? Well, it comes from Jesus. It's not something that they found within. It's coming from Jesus. Im implied is the Holy Spirit, but that will only come later in Luke as he develops more of that. Now, I'm sharing all this to say that the disciples, the apostles here, have delegated power and authority. Delegated. It's not theirs. They're borrowing it, and they're doing it on another's behalf. So just like if I am uh, representing a king, any power and authority comes from that king if I'm an ambassador, and I'm representing the king in all that I do. And that's what the apostles ought to do. Now, look at verse 2. We're going to camp on verse 2 for a minute. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He sent them out, sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. We're going to break this down real slowly. The sending language here is significant. Because God the Father sends Jesus, and now Jesus is sending the disciples. Okay? Now, God has been partnering with man since the beginning in the garden. And I just think this is absolutely absurd, like I said earlier. 
He has more power than we can ever imagine. And parents, have you ever asked your kids to do something and you know with all your heart they're going to just make it worse. They're going to mop and you're going to have to mop after them. You guys know what I'm saying? They're going to clean up and you're like, my goodness, you just, you're so bad. I'm going to have to clean up again. Right? If you're like me, sometimes I'm like, just get out of the way. Let me do it. I'll do it better and I'll do it right. Imagine how Jesus feels with us in anything that we do. Just get out of the way. I'll parent better than you, Sam. Just get out of the way. I'll witness better about me than you, Sam. Just get out of the way. I will do blank better than you. Anything we can do, Jesus can do better. And yet, in his insanity and in his absurdity and his grace, he partners with imperfect man. Is, is that not crazy? Because if I was him, I'd just be like, man, let me just do it all. You just watch. Watch the master, right? But he, he lets us do imperfect work when he could do perfect work. But rather than pointing to God being reckless or silly, I think this points to God's power. Listen, hear me out. I think it says something great about God's power that He can still accomplish His purposes though He's using imperfect people. Amen? I'm going to say that again because I'm watching heads and some of you guys are, are distracted by babies, which is fine. It's just fine. It's fine. Isn't it amazing that though the only people God has is imperfect people, God is so powerful and so good that He can still accomplish His purposes through imperfect people. That, that makes my heart swell with pride in Him. Wow. Not because of me, but despite me. He can work. Amen? <clears throat> so, Jesus has been walking with these disciples for a number of months now, and He says, now you do what I just did. And this is the pattern of discipleship we see in Jesus' ministry, is it works like this. <clears throat> Step one, watch what I do, and then let's talk about it. You see how I cast out demon? What do you think about that? Let's talk about that. Step two is, now you go do it, and then come back and let's talk about how that went. And then step three is, I'm sending you, and then I'm going to be with the Father and sending you the Spirit. That's the normal pattern of Jesus' ministry with his disciples, with his apostles. And I think, for us, there's an interesting principle for us to think about ministry. What I mean by that is, is that so much of ministry, true embodying Christ-like character, is more caught than taught. And if I were to pull you right here, name the three most life-changing sermons that changed your life, like literally changed the way you lived and thought, right now, raise your hand. I bet a lot of you would struggle thinking of them. But probably all of us could, if we tried hard, we could think about maybe some sermon there, here or there. But if I were to ask you, raise your hand and tell me somebody that really influenced you for Christ, that lived like Christ and loved like Christ more than anyone else, how many of you could raise your hand really quickly and say, you know someone? One person, two, oh goodness, alright, alright, thanks. Alright, more. See, because so much of the way of Christ is seeing rather than just merely hearing. But it's both seeing and hearing. Make no mistake. 
but this is a good thing for us to consider in our church. How should our church try to embody this pattern of ministry? See, because right now, you can look really godly here by just taking notes while I preach. But you are an absolute terror to live with. Right? Oh, amen. Yeah, pastor. Oh, I'm going to even tweet you. None of you guys tweet me, but I'm going to tweet you. Wow, I'm so godly. Look, everyone. Look, coffee in the Bible in the morning. Look at my Instagram, right? You can do that, and that's fine and all. I'm not throwing shade on you. But it's very easy to be like Christ here, right? Oh, how are you, brother? How in the heaven are you? Bless you, right? We can do that. But let me see you at the end of the day when you've had a hard day and you come home and you're tired. And if you are around someone who can love when they feel like bad words, you could start starting to see what Jesus really is like. And you're around those people enough, you start catching that. Because that becomes normal Christianity to you. You know what I'm saying? And so one way we one of one thing that we need to consider with this passage is how can our church as all people's church more and more do life together in a way where we rub shoulders, where we see Christ coming out of us in the hard times. And when we see how do we handle conflict? How do we handle when someone sticks us hard and hurts? And how do we respond in love and grace? Because it's very easy to sit around in a circle and have a Bible study. And I want more Bible studies, believe me. We're talking about that all the time how to do that. But it's very easy to be godly in that setting. But it's a lot harder to be godly when someone ignores you and you feel so rejected. Right? That's when you start seeing Christ embodied in real flesh. Anyway. I just, I want to share that for us to kind of ponder and pray. How can we more and more integrate our lives in a way where we can be Christ and live the, the way of Christ with each other? And catch it. As well as teach it. Now, let's break down what this proclaiming the kingdom of God means. I'm starting to lose my voice quicker than normal. Goodness, help me. Pray for me, guys. What does it mean to proclaim the kingdom of God? Let's break it down into three sections. Can you still hear me back there, Doreen? Awesome. <clears throat> All right, first, what does proclaim mean? Number two, what is the kingdom of God? And number three, how does this connect with verse 6 in this passage? Okay, let's break this down. First of all, this word proclaim is a special, unique, royal term. It's not just like a word that you use for talking or chatting or chopping it up, as TK loves to say, right? Proclaim is literally the word caruso. And caruso is a royal proclamation. It's a, let me read this, it's a Royal, it's, it's when heralds would go to a royal court and announce the coming of a king. It's an edict. It's a, it comes with royal authority. So when they are proclaiming the kingdom of God, they are speaking on behalf of the king and heralding his coming. It's a very unique term. It's not merely talking or sharing a helpful, interesting perspective that they should consider that if it's their truth and they want to embrace that truth. It's truth. It's reality. It's coming with royal authority. Now, what is the kingdom of God? This is a, a very commonly used term, but just basically the kingdom of God is where God reigns. It's his kingdom, his government, where he is the supreme ruler. And so for that audience, Jesus' kingdom is starting to break out into the darkness, into the world. And then for our context, Jesus has already come, and he's here. And he will one day come in fullness, where there will be no more anything but his kingdom. 
Now, the final piece, and we're going to piece it together. How does this connect with verse 6? Look at verse 6 real quickly. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the, what? The gospel and healing everywhere. If you look at this term in verse 6, and you look at, uh, is it verse 2 we're looking at? You'll see that these phrases are very similar. And what Luke is doing is he's using gospel and kingdom of God in a synonymous way. So what is this good news of the kingdom of God? What are we talking here? Well, it's this. The apostles have God's, Jesus' authority to represent him, to proclaim that the king has come. The long-awaited king has come, and everything that's wrong is going to be made right through his kingdom. And they're coming and saying, hey, repent. Other, if you read this passage in the parallel passages in the Gospels, it's also in Mark and also in Matthew. There's more details in those Gospels. They're saying specifically, repent. Why? For you to say Jesus' kingdom is here, that means your kingdom must end if you want to be part of his kingdom. You cannot have a competing kingdom. You must end your kingdom to be part of his kingdom. He will have no other way. And if you want all the benefits of the king, you must embrace the king. You must surrender to the king. You can't have the benefits of the king without loving the king. And so they're proclaiming this good news, that the kingdom has come. Now, notice the phrase that is connected in verse 2. And he sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. To heal is what he adds to the kingdom of God. Throughout the Gospels, we repeatedly see a theme that preaching is often tied with miracles. Preaching is tied with miracles throughout the Gospels and also in, the New, in, in, in Acts. And why is that important? It's because what they were doing is they would proclaim the kingdom of God and then demonstrate the kingdom of God. This is who Jesus is. This is how you can be with them. And now, boom, healed. Here's a sample of what Jesus is like. Boom. Woman who's never been touched for 12 years. Shame is removed. Boom. Leprosy is cleansed. Boom. Dead or raised. This is all a picture of what it's like when Jesus is king. So they both proclaim and demonstrate. So the healings during Jesus' ministry point to the immediate healing that they have access to in their soul, healing with their wound, their, the relational wound they have with God, the, the brokenness they have with God, but it also points to the long-term healing that Jesus will bring, where every tear will be wiped. So it's both now and coming. Now, if we look at our context right now, there's a, a, a debate raging in lots of churches, and a lot of churches are literally dividing over this, and that's this. Do you do good works, like social justice works, or do you share the gospel? Have you guys heard this going around in churches? This is happening in so many churches where people are leaving. One of the, our fellow churches have lost 150 people in the last quarter. And a lot of it is connected to this. Do you do good works or do you preach the gospel? And what I want to share with you is that the Bible doesn't divorce those. Do not let the culture define the terms for us. Do not let them frame the argument. Do you love, uh, do you love free choices or do you love babies? Right? Like, do not 
receive that. Do, do you love a uh, smaller government or do you love um, being greedy? Right, like they, they, they create these polarizations and they create and frame the argument. Do not let them frame the argument. Reject the argument and start by saying what is true. Do not make it an either or when so often the Bible is both and. Let me, let me break that down a little more. John Piper, who is, is, is like a grandpa for many of us, a spiritual grandpa, at Bethlehem Baptist Church decades ago, our grandmother church, he said this, And what I see around us today in the Christian church is a tendency to care only about the one or the other. These are the two camps. Here's camp one. I'm an activist for the cause of justice in life and wholeness and shalom and flourishing. Or here's camp two. I'm not going to be distracted by all that. I'm going to rescue people from hell. This is what Piper says. Here's what I want. I want all of us at Bethlehem to say, we will not make that choice. We will say the sentence and mean it. We care about all suffering now, especially eternal suffering later. That word especially is very important. If you don't know what the word especially means, you're going to fall into the trap of saying, which one matters? Well, both matters. But one especially matters. But when you say one especially matters, that doesn't mean the other doesn't matter. Are you with me? And it's very, very immature to, to say, well, it's hard to care about both. So I'm going to just pick one. You don't have to pick one. If you have a gun to your head, then pick one. Fine. But no one's in that situation. But the politics and the way it's raging on Twitter and social media, is it like you have to pick one? Do you care about people or do you care about them going to heaven or hell? Well, yeah, both. Do you care about the poor or do you care about the lost? Yes. Right? And as we integrate our lives and we reach out to people, we do not have to say one or the other. Now, here's the thing. Here's an important caveat. Every single Christian here... It's going to have a tendency to lean towards one side in ways that's a gift and ways that's a curse. What I mean by that is this. Is that some of you are very bold with preaching the gospel. You can look at someone who doesn't know Christ and say, Listen, brother, sister, you're going to hell if you don't trust Christ. And you are a gift to the church for you to be so bold and tell them how it is. And yet, it's sometimes so easy to just throw a gospel grenade and not invite them to sit at your table. Not invite them to sit down and work on a budget sheet. Not invite them and clean their spiritual diapers. Sometimes it's really easy to just go on a street corner and preach at them and then check off your list that you are a good Christian and go home and leave them alone. You know what I'm saying? And if that's you, you need to know that tendency in your heart to be a gospel grenader. Just throwing gospel grenades and then running back to your Christian bubble. And yet, in one sense, you are a gift if you're honed correctly. If you're careful, you can use that gift for good. On the other hand, there are some of you who are so prone to mercy and justice, and you will serve and you will love, and yet you have not tell, told someone about Jesus since 91. You're terrified. You keep saying, you know what, I just want to love them, and maybe one day God will open them a door, and, I just, and you, you're, you're a coward. That's another danger. In one sense, you're a gift because you are showing that Christ has flesh. Christ has serves. Christ does a, a difference in our lives. That's a gift. And yet, if you forget the fact that they will not have Christ 
forever, if they die without him, then you're doing them no good. You're just getting them comfortable for hell. You're fatting them up for the slaughter. And so on the other hand, if you're that person who you never share the gospel because you're terrified, but you're saying you're just trying to serve them and be Christ to them, you need to check yourself too. Every one of us here are going to have our tendencies and their gifts and they're also potential dark sides we got to watch out. And churches tend to pick one or the other and what happens is the people who are on the opposite side slowly just get disenchanted and leave that church and then all the people who are into that start streaming line to that church and it becomes very unbalanced. You know what I'm saying? So a church that's all about mercy, the people who are actually sharing the gospel get shunned and get discouraged and so they all leave to go to that church that shares the gospel. But they don't care about mercy. And then all the people who care about mercy start going to that one church. Hey, that church is about mercy. But none of them share the gospel. You guys see what happens? We need each other. We need our gifts to balance each other out. Because some of you share the gospel more boldly than I do. And you, to be honest, you shame me because I feel the cowardice in my heart. And then some of you, you serve better than me. And I want to just give them a, a blessing and then go on my way. And I need you. And you need me. Amen? Reject the polarization. Do both. But especially care about eternal suffering. Alright. Now, Jesus gives them instructions for their mission. Look at verse 3. He's giving, he's prepping their hearts for what's going to happen. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, no, nor money. And do not have two tunics. I'm not going to break down what each of these mean, but the essential point is this. Jesus is putting them in a position where they absolutely have to trust that he will come through or they're going to be dead. They don't have credit cards in their back pocket. They don't have mommy they can just call for a quick wire. They literally have to go with like, hey, what are you wearing? Uh, pants and a shirt. All right, go. That's all you need. They literally just have to go with what they got and depend that God will take care of the rest. Now, again, remember description versus prescription. This doesn't mean that we all do the same thing every day, but what it does do is show us the heart behind these actions. Do we have the same heart where we can trust God with, with much or little? Sometimes trusting God is having nothing, and sometimes trusting God is having something and knowing that He provided it all and He's the only one who can sustain anything. Which is something we really need in 2020. So look at verse 4. Would you guys read this out loud? Just to give me a quick water break. And whatever... Okay. Imagine going on a mission trip and you ask your team leader, oh, um, excuse me, team leader, um, you never mentioned where we're going to stay. And the team leader says, I don't know. How many parents would have let you go to that youth group mission trip? <laughs> That's basically what's going on. Jesus is like, you know what? They're like, oh, uh, Jesus, I, I didn't catch that. Did, did you say that we're going to stay at that nice? No, no, just go there. You'll figure it out. I'll provide. Jesus is literally making them be in a position where they have to trust them with even where they're staying. And he says, wherever you go, stay there until you depart. What he basically means is this. This is what a lot of scholars think. It's a little ambiguous. Basically means this. If you get there, and you get brought into a home, and all of a sudden, as you're preaching and healing, you get another person in the, in the community who has a nicer place, don't, don't be house hopping. 
hey, thank you for your hospitality, but I want to go to, you know, you know, this guy over here, he's got the indoor sauna thing, you know. Like, wherever you're at, stay there and just be committed there. Now, what will come of the apostles' mission? Verse 5. Could you read this with me? And wherever... I love the Bible. I love how sometimes the most basic observations that anybody can make here can be so powerful. What's this basic observation I'm making? Is this. For Jesus to tell them whatever, whenever they do not receive you or wherever they do not see, receive you, what does that imply? Some people will not receive them. Why is that encouraging? Is it because these guys are the freaking apostles? That's why it's encouraging. These guys are raising the dead. These guys are healing the sick. And Jesus is literally saying, even though you do that, some people are going to reject you. They're going to reject ultimately me. That encourages me. Does that encourage you? Because sometimes I think, God, if you just came through right now with a miracle, Lord, just do a miracle and they'll believe. Or, oh dang, I wish I read that apologetics book. I wish I had that argument ready. Or I wish someone discipled me better. Or, or, or what if, or what if, or what if. Then something will happen. But even if you have all your ducks in the order, in, in order? Well, what, what am I saying? Sorry, English is not my first language. Alright, ducks in a row, right? It is, sorry. That's just an excuse. Even if you have all that stuff going for you, even if you have miracles busting out of your wherever, it won't guarantee success and that encourages me this should liberate us because if you look at Matthew's account do it tonight it's terrifying and it's costly they're gonna get beat when they're rejected they're not just like hey we don't like you we're gonna say something bad on Twitter bad Yelp review they're literally beating them in the synagogues that's what's gonna happen to the disciples to the apostles and that encourages me because if if they can be faithful to the message, and they literally are walking with the guy, they know Jesus. They're not going to be like, hey, we know about a guy. They're literally be like, hey, I can, I can actually bring you to Jesus. Like, he's right over there. Just follow me. They can literally do that, and yet even then, people can reject them. So feel the freedom, church, not to put confidence on miracles or how trained you are, but that God will save who he will. And we just may, must be faithful to the task. Listen, it's not for us to change lives, but to be faithful to introduce everyone and anyone to the one who can change any life. It's not up to you. Take the burden off. You cannot change a life, but we know the one who can. I love that term, uh, that one phrase. Have you guys heard it from a song? It's a, uh, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody wait what I'm saying wrong right who can change anyone anybody alright I should have rehearsed that sorry you guys get it right I'm just a nobody trying to tell somebody about <laughs> I can't do it alright I'll, I'll show you guys I'll send it on Facebook alright it's great it's great but again take the burden off you cannot change a life but you can introduce them to the one who does change lives Okay, back to the text. What should the apostles do if they're rejected? Shake the dust off their feet 
What is this shaking off the dust? Well, this is this was like a Jewish tradition when people would reject um, the message. What they would do is they would look at the town, they would dust off the pagan, non-Jewish soil off their sandals, lest they put any of, track any of that soil into their holy land. And Jesus is using the same imagery, but altering it. What they're doing is, as the apostles come to these towns, if they reject the apostles, they're ultimately eject, rejecting who? Jesus. And so as they shake the dust off their feet, they're, they're doing a public sign saying, you've rejected Christ, and then so on the last day, Christ will reject you. It's a sign of judgment upon that whole town. It's terrifying. Which leads us to ask, what should we do about those in our life who reject Christ? Does this passage prescribe you to now stare them down and take your shoe up and wipe your foot off of their filth? No, don't do that. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. I bet some Bible college student out there read this passage and they didn't take their hermeneutics class and just ran off and did this. This is a principle here that ultimately shows that when someone rejects the gospel, they are heaping their own judgment. They're sealing their fate in that moment. And so that was just a mere symbol to show that to these towns, that we're getting another shot. Because most likely the towns that Jesus was sending the apostles were to, apostles to, were towns that he already went to. He's giving them probably another shot. And so he's basically dusting his hands saying, you know what, you had your shot. I've extended mercy and you rejected the very giver of mercy. Now for us, we have to ask, what do we do about the people in our life who reject the gospel? Here's my rule of thumb. <clears throat> if it's somebody in your normal sphere of life, where you work, play, or live, if they don't want Christ, you can't make them want Christ, so you pray and you move on and focus on the people who want Christ. You don't ignore them, but you just don't focus on them, unless you have a rare moment where the Holy Spirit moves and you say, Sam, do not give up on this one. I've had people in my life who utterly rejected Christ, and yet the Spirit compelled me to say, Sam, do not give up. i got something here that I want to do. And what I mean to not prioritize them, I don't mean that you ignore them and don't befriend them but you prioritize the people who are hungry and open. Now the people who are really in your life, like your family, do not do that with them. You continue to be faithful, you continue to pray for them, you continue to look for open doors, you continue to show Christ, you continue to share the gospel as God opens up doors. But my general rule is if it's somebody who like is not in my normal sphere of life that I'm just running into, if they don't want Christ, I'm not going to chase after them unless the Spirit is prompting me in a unique way. Does that make sense? I said that in a very confusing way and I kind of reversed it, so I apologize. Hopefully you're tracking with me. Now back to the text. Verse 6. <clears throat> so they depart and went throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Again, preaching and healing are tied together in the preaching the gospel. Now, the question is, do we have the same mission as the apostles as we read this? How do we apply this mission? Well, we don't have less than they proclaimed, but we have more than they proclaimed. They proclaimed to Jesus that 
was there right on the earth. We proclaim a Jesus who has come and will come again. And we can not just say, repent for the kingdom is hand is at hand. We can say, repent for Jesus did everything possible so that you can come to him. He removed every possible barrier so you can have forgiveness of sins and be reconciled with God. That's the difference of what the apostles had at this time than what we have. We can point to Jesus' life, full life, his death, and his resurrection, which they could not do, and his coming kingdom. <clears throat> but then the, here's the tricky question. Do we have the same power and authority as the apostles? Now here's the tricky thing. Well, if you look at Luke chapter 10, if you want to just peek at it, you'll see that Jesus commissioned 72 other disciples who are not apostles to do almost exactly the same thing that the 12 apostles do. So what does that tell you right now? That miracles are not limited exclusively to apostles. And if you look throughout the book of Acts, you'll see that a lot of nobodies are doing miracles as well. So what does that show you? That even after Christ has ascended and given his spirit, that average ordinary Christians can be used by God to perform miraculous deeds. So, what about us? Two passages to consider, but I'm not going to go into depth. If you want to talk about this, this is a huge debate. We can do it offline. But look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. If you could turn there, please. A lot of you know this passage. It's a great commission. But notice a couple of important points here. <clears throat> Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Who? Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to Jesus. And because of that, go therefore, that's what the word therefore, now that I said all this, therefore you make disciples of all nations. And he, and he gives them multiple things to do baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I command and what do they do at all? in the name in the authority in the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and behold I am with you always to the end of the age until so the very end of the passage kind of bookmarks hey, in the beginning, look, I have all the authority in the very end he says, I'm always going to be with you so, what do we take from that? well, let's Pair that with Acts chapter 1, verse 8. A lot of you guys know Acts 1, 8 off the top of your head, but I'll just say it real quick. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now there are more passages that we can combine to try to understand what this looks like for us, but at minimum, what we know is this. Is that the disciples' power that they have, when I say disciples, I mean us, everyday disciples, is power that is borrowed. It's power that's not native to us. It's from the Holy Spirit. All the authority and power is from the Lord, and we, by God's grace, can tap into that power to make much of Christ in His name. And so in one sense, we have the power and authority, but in another sense, we don't have the power and authority. Run from those preachers who make it sound like they innately have the power and authority. The Spirit is the one who has the power of authority. You don't have confidence in a man. You have confidence in the Spirit that works through men and women. That's significant. So, 
primarily, if you look at both Matthew 28 and Acts 1, what are the key words that it's talking about? It's using words like witnesses. Make disciples. The primary call for us today is not, demonst not demonstration only, but proclamation of what Christ has done. That's the primary call for us to be witnesses of what Christ has done and how people can be part of it. And yet, this I'm going to read this so I don't say it wrong. I wrote this down. But we also can pray in the name of Jesus to demonstrate His kingdom through miracles and through compassionate works. Demonstrating miracles may not be as automatic as it was or it seemed to be for the apostles, even though sometimes they couldn't perform miracles if you read your Bible carefully. But I believe it could be a lot more in our life if we grow in walking by faith and depending on the Spirit. That was a lot. And, and I'm sure a lot of these words are kind of going over you at this point because it's a lot of talking. And this is not great. But what I'm basically saying is the primary call for us is proclamation and we want to demonstrate that with good deeds, empowered by the Spirit, and also miracles as God gives us opportunity. But that's not our primary goal in life is to just merely do miracles for miracles sake. The miracles are supposed to attestify to the power of God and the reality of God and what we're saying. They demonstrate the reality, but they're not the purpose. They're not the goal. Does that make sense? Yeah. Alright, this is a big thing. So you guys can talk to me on the side if, if, if I'm bothering you. Now let me wrap up the sermon by returning to the last verse in our text. The works of the apostles were clearly newsworthy, so much that Herod heard, the Tetrarch. This is not Herod the Great, by the way. Herod the Tetrarch. Verse 7. Could you read this out loud, if you're there? Luke chapter 9, verse 7 through 9. Now, Herod... So Herod hears this news of the twelve going around the towns preaching and demonstrating the kingdom. And yet, I love that Herod's response is not to see the disciples, but to see Jesus. What does this suggest to me? It suggests to me that the disciples did their job. Because ultimately, if you're an ambassador for the king, you're not trying to get attention for yourself. You're trying to get attention for the king you represent. And so the disciples were able to herald and proclaim and demonstrate in such a manner that they were like, who is this Jesus? Not, let me talk to you more. Let me get to know you more. You must be special because you're doing all this. I hope that I can be that kind of person where when you leave me, you think more of Jesus and you forget about me. That would be wonderful. May that be the case for all of us. Back to the text. Though corrupt and wicked, Herod asks one of the greatest questions you could ever ask. He says this, Who is this about who I hear such things? In other words, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Everybody in this park, in this world, must ask this question. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Is he some great teacher? Or is he 
the greatest con man and lunatic who's fooled billions, including me? Or is he who he says he is? Is he the only Savior and Lord? Is he the very purpose for living? Is he the very one whom the whole world is being held up by? Is he the only one who can forgive sins? The only one who can make all things new? All of us must make a decision about who this man is. You cannot delay on this decision. You can't procrastinate. You can't say, well, one day I'll get to that. You must ask this question. But note Herod's response. He ought, he sought to see him. And yet, if you read the rest of Luke in chapter 23, why does Herod want to see him? Do you remember? Let me read it. Luke 23, 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Oh, that sounds good. For he had longed to see him. That sounds great. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. Why does Herod want to see Jesus? He wants a show. He wants to be tickled. He wants to be impressed. He wants the gifts, but not the giver. He wants the blessings without the blesser. He wants the kingdom without the king. He wants the benefits without the one whom all the benefits flow from. When you, I got this observation from Scott during sermon prep. The different towns that rejected the apostles' message rejected Jesus in one way. But what Herod shows us here is that you can reject Jesus in other ways. You can reject Jesus while welcoming Him. Isn't that terrifying? You can reject Jesus while simultaneously welcoming Him, welcoming him into your life. Hey! Oh, I've, I've, I've heard about you. Oh, do something for me. That's a very dangerous place to be. This begs the question for all of us. Do you want Jesus for Jesus? Or do you want Jesus for all that He can do for you? Are you like Herod, who you just want your life to be improved? You just want a show. You just want something good for you. Or do you want the treasure of the universe, Jesus? Let's sit on that for a second. The way you know if this is the case for you is how you respond when your life sucks. Because if your life starts to suck and you suffer, and your response is, Come on, Jesus! How are you doing this to me? Then it's likely there's parts of your heart, or maybe all of your heart, that you're just using Jesus for your best life now. But if your life starts to fall apart and you say, you know, Jesus, I don't get why you're doing this. I don't get what's going on. It's so painful, but I still love you. Then you know that your heart has truly latched on the true treasure. And the true treasure is Jesus, not, and knowing Him, not a better life. The better life will come, but the treasure is Him alone. Amen? Now, Jesus, for us, church, wants to partner with us to proclaim and demonstrate His kingdom. What a privilege. That is insanity. If you know my heart, you know where my thoughts have been this last month, you know all the different things in my background, it is insane and borderline reckless that he would want to partner with me, and yet he does. And he wants to partner with you. 
Despite how broken your past and your present is, He wants to partner with us, church, by His Spirit, because of His grace. But let me say this. There is no single verse in the Bible that gives us a category for Christians and then Christians. Christians who know Christ and share about Him and Christians who don't share about Him. There's no category in the Bible for knowing this treasure and yet being unwilling to share the treasure. It is nonsensical and it's unbiblical. So I want to challenge you, have you accepted the call that Jesus extends to all to join Him in His mission, to proclaim and demonstrate His good news? If you are on the sidelines, let me just say this to you, that is not biblical. The Bible does not psychologize and say, well, you know, it's okay, you don't, you can, you're just timid. God has just personality wired you to not tell. God understands. Well, He does understand. He don't meet you where you're at, but He won't leave you where you're at. And so I just want to challenge us. Have we all embraced this call to make our great ambition to know Him first and to second to make Him known? Because if you're not committed to making Him known, then I'm going to highly doubt if you actually know. Because how can you know Him and not be committed to making everything you're about, about your life, about making Him known? Whether that's house, being a housewife, or a businessman, or a teacher, or anybody, our whole life must gravitate towards knowing Him and making Him known. And if you don't have that, then please be alarmed. Please be deeply alarmed and concerned, and come talk with one of us. The question should not be if you are called to this, but how. And here's the good news that I'm ending with. Is that the blood of Jesus is enough for our imperfections. All of us here are going to blow it many times in proclaiming and demonstrating. Walk away, man, I said that wrong. Oh, I wasn't bold enough. Or, oh, I was too, too forward. Or, oh, man, I was a coward here. Or, oh, I was selfish here. We're all going to blow it. And you know what? The blood of Jesus even covers that. It covers even our imperfections in being a witness for Him. He's so good. He picks a bunch of nobodies like us, people who are wishy-washy and flakes and cowards, and yet He carries us all the way through. Jesus is powerful enough to use us in our weaknesses and our brokenness. So church, let us partner with Him this week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, You know, You know how much we struggle to be faithful to You. And I thank you that you are faithful to us even when we are faithless. Even when we're cowardly. Even when we think so little of your, the power of your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you have not only saved us, but you have called us to the great privilege of partnering with you. What a privilege. Lord, I pray that you'd help us feel the weight of that privilege. And not let that just kind of go over us. Or, or, or not let the lie come in for some of us thinking, thinking oh, that's, that's not me. i got to pass on that one. I have an understanding with God on that one. No, let every one of us feel the weight and privilege. And with that, fill us with fresh boldness. Fill us with fresh power by your Holy Spirit so we can be your witnesses. So we can proclaim. So we can demonstrate. Lord, because our cities are burning. Our nation is lost. By large, they don't know you. Let us be the light you've called us to be. Pour out your Spirit upon our city. Be merciful, Lord. 
Let riot fires make way for revival fires, Lord, we ask. Give us fresh boldness, Lord. Take away all the idols and the things that keep us back from giving you everything. And if there's anyone here who you're not their treasure, you're not their purpose for living, oh Lord, grip their hearts right now afresh and show them that you have better for them and that you're the answer that they've been searching for. You're the reason for living. And may they embrace it. And do that for our kids at young ages. Let them be committed to this. Even in, at five, even at eight, raise up an army of kids who, who embrace this missionary calling, Lord. Father, if there's anything that I said that wasn't biblical, Lord, correct me and let no one hear it. But Lord, everything that is true, let it deeply shape us and become part of who we are and what we delight in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.